You are on strike at the gulch, on strike against irrationality, on strike against illogicality, on strike against the unethical and injustice, on strike for reason, positivity. You are in Gold's Gulch. This is Ianto Fox. Uh, we have philosophy, ideas, discussion, positivity, and above all, a break from current events and whatever is going on outside the Gulch. This is uh, my second post on Whitaker Chambers. Uh, I'm going to focus more, though, on Alger Hiss today. Uh, really just a discussion on the Hiss case. Uh, it's something that um, many of you will know or have at least heard about, but a lot of people don't really know too, much, too many of the details. It's often a footnote in Cold War history. Um, it's one of the celebrated events of uh, modern conservatism, classical liberalism. Um, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's, a, it's something that a lot of people really know the details about. Uh, they're mainly familiar with Alger Hiss being a communist or Alger Hiss not being a communist. Um, largely dictated by uh, whichever political views you may have. The story is very interesting, uh, so I want to talk about that to fill in the details uh, for any of you who might be interested. Um, I mean, uh, some of the scholars you uh, could look up if you want to learn more about this, um, John Beresford um, has written about this. Uh, he did a podcast series uh on the his chambers case um and uh what's his name sam sam uh tannenhaus tannenhaus t-a-n-e-n-h-a-u-s um tannenhaus has written quite a lot of different books um he studied uh i can't remember i i, I don't know if he wrote a biography of uh william f buckley um, I, I can't quite remember. Um, he certainly spent a lot of time studying Buckley's influence. Uh, I believe he spent quite a bit of time with Buckley. Um, anyway, that's I might have that slightly wrong. That's not the point here. Uh, he 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 wrote the biography of Whitaker Chambers. Um, it's the only biography I know of Whitaker Chambers, uh, although there might be a few more. Um, but anyway, th those two are, are pretty good people to look up. Um, there was a book in the 1970s as well on the Alger Hiss, uh, Whitaker Chambers case, that's, um, the author of which I can't remember. Uh, but if you're looking for more reading uh, and you don't, you don't know much about it, some of you might know far more than I do about it, um, but uh, a lot of you might not. Um, yeah, those, those are good sources to go to. So, I mean, you might ask why, why would anyone want to learn about this nowadays i mean you might enjoy a bit of cold war history um i mean we can always learn from history uh maybe it's just you know real life spy case i mean many many uh many of the scholars who have have touched on this who have said um that it would make a great movie i don't know i don't know if it's been turned into a tv miniseries or a, it's certainly not been turned into a movie as far as I, i'm aware this is Usually remembered as the Alger Hiss case. Um, a lot more focus on Alger Hiss than Chambers. It could be um, 
I mean, those partial to Hiss would probably see it more as the Hiss case. Uh, those partial to Chambers would prefer, would probably see it more in Chambers light than anything. So uh, what, what exactly was this case? Alger Hiss was, it's hard to explain just how big a thing this was at the time. Um, this was uh, prior to uh, prior to the McCarthy era, which is a whole other story. Um, but it's it's seen as the the warm up act uh, to to the to the McCarthy era, to the nineteen fifties, uh, to the um, trial of uh, Ethel uh, Rosenberg and husband uh, Julius. Um, it, it happened three years after World War II had ended. Um, the political winds were shifting, the cultural winds were shifting, and um, it could be seen as one of the opening sallies, um, early events in the Cold War. And that's why it was a big deal. Um, Alger Hiss was a high high up uh, civil servant he he was um one of the party uh to the american side of the uh, of the alter conference um i forget exactly which position he had uh, i'd have to look back in the notes here um he held some sort of assistance position um, he held uh, an advisory role as well. Uh, during the during the his case, um, he issued a statement uh, detailing his resume, and uh, I mean here in 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 witness, uh, Whitaker Chambers's book Witness. Uh, I mean this this statement continues um, detailing his. His governmental career it goes on for about seven or eight pages. Um, uh, he he talks about uh, being in government for fifteen years, serving all three branches of the government. Um, he was an official in the Department of State. Uh, he was appointed the Secretary General, which is the top administrative officer. Uh, of the peace building international assembly that created the united nations um he was at dumbarton oaks and um at malta yalta and um numerous other uh numerous other international conferences um and then he lists he lists this giant um number of names including john foster dulles um Stanley Hornbeck um Eleanor Roosevelt uh, obviously the uh, the first lady um around about two dozen uh two dozen people um high up in the uh, American government at the time uh whom he lists as people he worked with um really to try to to bolster his character uh this is also one of the reasons why um a lot of the population and especially those who moved in his circles uh were incredulous at the charge that uh he had been a member of the communist party 
and might have still been a member of the Communist Party at the time that the his case happened, which was in uh, 1948. Uh, to try to get to try to get an an understanding of just how how big a deal this was, because uh, his although he, he had uh, he held very high positions within the government, um, it's uh, you know it's, it's still it doesn't sound the the gravity of these positions doesn't sound so strong. To try to get an idea of of just how uh, just how much um, th this moved the political waters at the time. Uh, two Supreme Court justices, uh, Felix Frankfurter and Stanley Reed, were voluntary character witnesses for his at his first trial. Um, not just one, two of them. Uh, I mean, if you try to imagine that happening nowadays, uh, to try to put some perspective on it, uh, but maybe that'll help you, I don't know. And um, then after Hiss was convicted, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Dean Acheson was the Secretary of State at the time, um, actually issued, uh, issued a statement uh, saying, uh, saying that he would not, uh, quote, I will not turn my back on Alger Hiss, end quote. Um, even after Hiss was convicted, uh, which is probably one of the best ways to, 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 to see how important this was at the time, and to a large extent still is, uh, even though it's not really mentioned very much. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people will probably know the case for the uh, quote-unquote pumpkin papers. Um, what were the pumpkin papers exactly? Uh, I mean, if you've, if, you've done a, if you've done a history course, or maybe you've browsed through a, a history section in a bookstore. Maybe you've been chatting about uh, chatting about these kind of subjects with friends. Uh, you know, maybe you've seen it in movies, TV shows uh, from the nineteen forties, or set in the nineteen forties or fifties. Uh, maybe if you've heard about it, you, you know, you see these images of a of a darkened courtroom uh, of a farm, Richard Nixon. Uh, on this farm, standing next to a pumpkin, uh, there are some papers in the pumpkin and some, you know, some microfilm. Um, yeah, that's actually what what a lot of people remember it for. Um, the House on American Activities actually used that to their advantage. Uh, his, uh, not his, sorry. Uh, Chambers remarks that in witness, he says that uh, the House on American Activities. Um, maybe I'll get to that a bit later. But uh, the House on Un-American Activities was not really very powerful. Uh, it was stifled in many ways by other departments and um, departments of the government, aspects of the government, um, for various different reasons. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the members of um, uh, a lot of the, the members and a lot of the staff for the uh, House on American Activities were not were not that new. Uh, some of them were not that new to those kind of roles. Um, so one thing they used was uh, they tr they tried to use the media to their advantage whenever they could uh, to create. Um, 
an image, a spectacle, uh, to try to get attention to what they were doing. Um, I mean, I remember back when I was studying, I remember back when I was studying uh, the topic of the House on Un-American Activities came up. Um, one of the one of the things I didn't realize at the time, uh, it's often portrayed as if uh, it was a it was a very powerful entity that um, it had all the force of the government behind it. Uh, it was um, running these witch hunts against all these different people, and uh, actually, it's um, I mean, according to Chambers here in Witness. It, it wasn't very well organized. Um, they didn't have they didn't have um, masses of staff behind them. They had some, but but uh, Hiss actually had more people working for him than uh, than the uh, House on American Activities did. So um, yeah, this this led to these celebrated pumpkin uh, papers. What were they exactly? Um, it was it was the documentary evidence that Whitaker Chambers introduced during the his case. Um, as he remarks earlier in Witness, uh, a lot of people assume mistakenly that he began the his case uh, with all this evidence, knowing that he had it, and he didn't. Um, when he left the Communist Party, he took a lot of documents that he had at the time. And he um, secreted them away. Uh, he gave them to uh, his, oh, I can't remember, um, a member of his wife's family who was a lawyer. I can't remember the exact relation. He gave uh, these documents to this person uh, because this person was a lawyer. He thought maybe this is the kind of person who, who can put these away for me uh, well. Um, he put these, uh, they were, I think they were stored away at, at a house, actually, not, not in a safe, not in a, um, not in a, an office or, or anywhere like that. And um, Chambers forgot what he'd put in there uh, because so much time had gone past. I don't think he spent too much time um, looking over which documents he, he took as some evidence that uh, he had been in this um, Communist Party uh, espionage ring. And so when the his case began, uh, Chambers, Chambers didn't know about that. Um, it was only uh, partway through the case that uh, he remembered that he had these documents. And so he got them and um, he stored them in a pumpkin. Uh, but he didn't store them in a pumpkin for very long. He only stored them in a pumpkin for a period of 24 hours or less. Uh, during one during one point uh, during the case, at one point I should say during the case, he and his wife had to leave their farm. They lived on a farm. Uh, they would both be gone uh, that day, and he was a bit worried about leaving this evidence in the house. Uh, he hadn't yet turned it over to uh, the House on Un-American Activities. Um, that's another story in itself. But uh, he put it in the pumpkin. He uh, cut off a pumpkin's head, or the top of the pumpkin, I should say. Uh, put the evidence in there, uh, and then he covered the pumpkin up. 
and um, it's it's famous because uh, one of the uh, one of the members on the um, of the House on American Activities, uh, Striplin, I believe, issued a subpoena duces tecum to Chambers, uh, which is a subpoena uh, duces tecum. So what it means is uh, you must provide any any documentary evidence uh, that you may have relating to to a charge. Um, you must turn it over to uh, the authority that's issuing this. So uh, Robert Striplin um, issued this to Chambers, uh, not, not, not at the start of the case, this was uh, quite a bit later on, and uh, Hiss uh, turned these documents over. And one of the interesting things um, about it is that there were not any papers in there. Um, the only thing he had put in there was microfilm. Uh, the documents that um, helped to convict Hiss uh, were typed documents of State Department files that were typed on Hiss's uh, typewriter with Hiss's own handwritten notes, his own handwriting on there. That was turned over to, I think it was turned over to the Justice Department first. Um, and at that point, uh, UAC, the, the House on, on American Activities, asked Chambers, do you have any more of this doc uh, documentation? Why, why didn't you give this to us earlier? And uh, Chambers said, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy testifying against my old friends, etc., etc. Didn't really say too much. He said, no, I don't have any more. Stripling issued the subpoena juices tecum because uh, he didn't really, didn't really believe Chambers that much, and and um, Chambers then turned over the microfilm. Uh, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the um, main uh, reasons that uh, people criticize Chambers. Uh, it's um, one of the main arguments that those who uh, believe in Hiss's innocence uh, make is that Chambers, throughout the, throughout the case, um, did not uh, bring evidence and information forward very easily. Uh, and there were one or two times when he was asked, do you have any more information? Uh, and he said, no, under oath. Um, but we, we can come to that later. So where does, I mean, where does this all begin, really? I mean, it begins with Whitaker Chambers joining the Communist Party. So Chambers, um, if you didn't listen to the other podcast, if you don't know much about him before, uh, you haven't heard much about him before, Chambers... Uh, was uh, a literatus, um, uh, a university literatus, not um, literatus, of, a potential literatus, I suppose. Um, he hadn't really um, achieved very much in the literary world, apart from he had great promise when he was at university. And... Um, he was expected to go into uh, fiction, poetry, writing, and he was a very unhappy young man. He was a very unhappy young man who was greatly moved 
by the troubles at his time. It's interesting to read it because I mean, people talk about nowadays, you know, all, the, all, all these problems and issues happening. I mean, Chambers is writing about that. Uh, you know, it sounded like this was about 100 years ago. Uh, Chambers was in the same position as a young man 100 years ago. Uh, and at one point in Witness, he's talking about um, conversations with his brother about uh, about, about um, fatherhood, parenthood, uh, saying, saying to his brother that they both said they didn't really want to bring children into a world like this. That was 100 years ago. Um, same things I hear nowadays. So uh, with, with the passing of time, we can often look back and uh, um, look at these things in, in, you know, in an easier light. We think, well, of course, you know, we will get through it, etc., etc. Um, but when you're going through it, you don't always look at it that way. And um, yeah, he, he went into the Communist Party. Uh, I hope to talk about this in other podcasts. Um, there are so many f- things that are interesting from the book. He writes that, uh, you know, the Communist Party was not an attractive party. Uh, he, I mean, what probably one of the main reasons he came out of it was that he said he had an aversion to the use of force, which is kind of funny, uh, you know, uh, coming from a communist. But he um, he went into the Communist Party uh, because he said he didn't really see an alternative. Um, as I said in the last podcast, when he talks about what's the difference between a communist and uh, you know fellow travellers, or what what makes someone a communist, he, he doesn't really. When he answers those questions, he doesn't really talk in terms of political theory. Uh, he talks. Uh, he talks about conviction of 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 faith. Um, I mean, one of the I, I suspect that 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 reveals a lack of political theory and understanding from from um, communists or from uh, fellow travelers as well, I suppose. Um, but that's that's what he said took him into the Communist Party. It gave his life a purpose, and he was lacking it as a young man. And he uh, gave up these literary talents. Uh, he seems to have been interested in the action uh, of doing something. He talks about his fellow intellectuals, uh, you know, being interested in communism or what what. Um, you know what the state could do if only it had all this power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know these are there are issues in the world that need to be tackled. Um, but he says that you know that, that they spoke quite highly uh, of Marx and of Lenin. But they then when he joined the Communist Party and he told them that he had joined, they were hesitant. Uh, he talk he talks about them. He talks about them uh, using ideas uh, like ping pong balls. Um, that, that are interested in some sort of intellectual play, but not actually doing anything. Um, I mean, I, I've seen that personally <laughs> among a lot of a lot of intellectuals, and that, that's the subject of a whole other podcast, isn't it? I mean, a, a lot of you, a lot of you here listening, uh, might have seen that uh, around you today or this week, whenever you know, uh, whenever and wherever you're listening to this. If it's just a few days after the um, uh, after publication, or or months or years after this, uh, this has been published, um, 
So he went into uh, the Open Communist Party and uh, he met a lot of different people. This was in the 20s. Uh, he said that at the time, a lot of a, there were a lot of people who were sympathetic to these ideas, uh, but they didn't join the Communist Party for various reasons. But in the 1930s, with the Depression, uh, they they all moved to it. Um, he said, like, I mean, there were waves and waves of intellectuals who moved into the Communist Party. And this is how he got to know Alger Hiss. Um, because Chambers had held uh, important editing positions, like that of the Daily Worker, which was the main communist um, publication at the time, uh, he had turned it into something that was not uh, that is not that popular with it within within its own circles actually, into something that um, was fairly well organised and managed to get a fairly decent readership at the time. Uh, this gained the trust of a lot of people within the uh, American Communist Party and the Communist International. And he was selected to uh, go into what was known as the underground. So this was the um, hidden Communist Party. Th this stuff, this stuff really is like a spy movie. Um, you, you, we're, we're here we're talking about uh, people taking on pseudonyms, a one-name pseudonym, taking on different pseudonyms for different operations, um, meeting people in movie theatres, walking uh, to the park together, uh, walking around for one or two hours randomly, uh, being taught to uh, recognise an area of the city, but not the place names or even the road names. Um, things of that nature for hopefully what are, what are pretty clear uh, security reasons. Um, very frustrating for very frustrating for those uh, trying to trying to stop such activities and to learn about it. But that's the whole point of why these clandestine operations were done that way. And so he moved into uh, he moved into this. Um, a lot of it was um, a lot of it was intelligence gathering. Um, sorry, no, I've got that wrong. Uh, early on, he was part of the Ware Group, if I remember correctly, uh, named after Harold Ware. There were a lot of different people, a lot of them within the government, uh, within Washington. And um, Jay Peters, uh, there's, a, there's an interesting part of the book, uh, Jay Peters, which was the pseudonym of the uh, head of the American Communist Party at the time. Um, stated to to Chambers that uh, even in Germany, in the under the Weimar Republic, the Communist Party didn't have what it had then in Washington D.C. Uh, during the nineteen thirties, in in terms of um, in terms of operations. Um, various uh, sleeper groups and espionage groups, which Chambers writes um, because 
although he wrote witness uh he wrote witness uh around the time that joseph mccarthy was becoming famous many people uh like today downplayed uh these claims that there was lot lots of uh, communist operation within the american government lots of infiltration um it, you know it's all exaggerated uh those are those those are topics for another time um i mean different people make different claims on that uh but it certainly was the case that there there was a lot of infiltration uh the question is on how much infiltration how much did it impact policies uh how much did it in fact impact sorry uh, and affect uh the cold war those are different questions but he mentions that to try to show just how um just how this really really was something that happened um there were many people high up in in the government who were members of the communist party um and he lists he lists quite a few uh he lists at one point i think he said that he personally met with 70 or 80 people or it could be that he knew that in the where group there were at least 70 or 80 people um he also mentions as well like i mentioned in the last podcast he said that numbers uh, is not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily the best way to look at um infiltration effectiveness uh would be the best way to to understand the infiltration uh by these groups in the government and so um anyway there was uh, a sleeper group set up um chambers didn't really know at the time what the what the group was supposed to be doing um and so that was set up and uh was a, was later abandoned if i remember correctly and then turned into an espionage group I, I can't quite recall but chambers met hiss and there were a group of others uh who worked in various part uh, various parts of the government various departments um julian wadley lee pressman um the names of a few of us escape me now there were five or six who were fairly close who knew each other and uh chambers relationship with hiss um is the most interesting because hiss was the highest placed official who was a member of this group and chambers uh relationship with him was the strongest uh and was uh, a genuine friendship and and the whole hiss case uh was simply that Whitaker Chambers uh in um after he left the communist party he knew his from 1934 to i think 1938 he left the communist party uh officially i think in 1939 and um he tried to warn people in the government about these activities and uh failed and he spent about 10 years trying to build a different life for himself because it spent all this time uh he writes in one part of the book when he left the communist party he was he, he writes that he was 37 years old he um had no job he had no real 
work experience, no resume, because he'd been doing all this activity, but he couldn't tell people about it. Um, because he had been doing uh, literary work, he had a literary background, literary resume, that's what he continued to do. And he managed to get uh, positions at uh, Time magazine and Life magazine, and he rose up to become a senior editor. Uh, there were seven senior editors, if I remember correctly, and he, he became one of these senior editors at Time magazine. And uh, he purchased a farm because that's where he wanted to live. So quite unusual for uh, a literary, uh, literary person. Um, I think that's, that's also an indication of his character. You know, why, why did he break away from the Communist Party? Why did he go through this whole ordeal? testifying about it. Um, well, you can see that to some extent in, in the fact that he uh, was an editor, senior editor of Time magazine, yet he ran a farm, um, kind of very practical, hands-on work that uh, a, a, lot of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people who uh, spend time in the library are not really um, inclined to do. So during this time, um, I've just had a brief look again at the books, uh, but uh, I'd have to flick through all the pages. Harry Dexter White, um, uh, Julian Wadley, uh, Algie Hiss, and uh, a few others were part of um, the group which Chambers worked with most closely in his last few years in the Communist Underground and in the Communist Party. They Mainly, they primarily uh, gave information to the group that was then passed on to the um, possibly agents in the Communists uh, International, um, but uh, was passed over to the Soviet Union. Um, the fourth division of the Soviet military, I can't remember uh, the exact term that um, Chambers used. Uh, he used to, um, during this time, he used to uh, meet with his superior, which was a man named Colonel uh, Boris Baikov, whom he always communicated with in German. Um, yeah, he mentions that uh, during those days, German, uh, in the 1920s and 1930s as well, German was the uh, primary language of the Communist International. Um, Chambers was a polyglot. He spoke many languages. He spoke German, read German uh, fluently to the to pretty much the highest levels. He did translation work that um, let him earn a living uh, when he left the Communist Party and left the underground, um, which was his um, means of uh, means of support. Um, they they provided him uh, a salary of such to do this business. Um, there are quite a few interesting things to note from all of this uh, that Chambers writes about uh, that sheds light a bit on Algie Hiss and that group and what they were doing. Uh, one of these being that Hiss and Wadley and um, all these members actually, uh, I think it was anyone, I don't know if there's anyone in the open Communist Party, I can't remember, but they used to give something like 10% of their salary to the Communist Party. 
Um, this was seen as uh, an act of um, support and faith, belief in what they were doing. Uh, apparently, they, they gave it quite cheerfully. Um, at one point, uh, at one point, Chambers says that the Hisses, so Alger Hiss and his wife, moved their son from a private school to uh, a different school so they could save more money, uh, part of which they could send to the, uh, to the Communist Party. Um, mainly what, mainly what uh, Hiss provided to the, uh, to the group was uh, information from the State Department and Chambers used to collect this from the different uh, agents, different people uh, from the group who were working at, in different government governmental departments. Sometimes they used to uh, bring the documents home when they could. These documents were typed and then the originals returned. And when that was impossible, um, Hiss, for example, did this apparently quite a lot, used to write notes uh, detailing the documents. If the documents could not be removed from the office or it was, it was too dangerous to do so, uh, he wrote these notes down. He took these home and these were typed up. Chambers left the party in uh, 38 or 39, he talks a lot about why he left. He talks a lot about the anguish that it gave him. Um, this is usually what a lot of people who comment on Chambers and his work uh, talk about the most. Um, I haven't really talked about it in either of these podcasts. Uh, he says that, uh, I mean, it's probably the most, one of the most famous parts of, of, of the book, really what a lot of people know Chambers for or remember him for. He said to his wife when they believed in the Communist Party that he believed they were leaving the winning side for the side of probable defeat. It's quite interesting. He said the word probable, and I think a lot of people who quote him on that um, exclude that word. But that's how he felt. He he felt that um, he felt that the communists were uh, were the uh, they were in the driving seat. He felt that they had all the energy. Uh, they had even if he thought they were wrong, and he he said that as well. Um, he felt that in leaving the communist party, maybe he was leaving it for nothing. Maybe there was no alt or no viable alternative, but he said he, he, he saw it as evil. He just couldn't continue. And so what happened was after his break, uh, he discusses how he went to see different people he, he had worked with and try to persuade them to leave the party. And um, he thought that Alger Hiss would, because he was friendliest with Alger Hiss, because he said that they had a really close friendship. Unlike most of the uh, relationships he had in the communist underground with this um, espionage work and intelligence gathering and um, uh, propaganda work as well. Originally, he did it mainly he was just doing propaganda, not espionage. 
he said that uh, he thought his would be the most um, welcoming of all these um, individuals to the possibility of leaving the Communist Party because of these um, convivial, uh, friendly, warm relations that they had. And actually, no, uh, Hiss was one of the least interested in what um, Chambers had to say. Uh, Chambers uh, noted many different things um, about the purges, um, about the nature of how the Communist Party works. Um, and he said that his just, just wouldn't, he wasn't interested. Um, Chambers says that he, he misunderstood the degree to which the affection that his had for him hinged upon their comradeship in the Communist Party and on political terms. Um, so... Leaving, by leaving the Communist Party, his didn't regard Chambers in the same way. Um, maybe he, maybe he thought he was uh, immoral for doing so. We're not, um, not really too sure because he, he didn't really say much about it. They left on pretty bitter terms uh, with, with each other. Although Chambers said he still felt very friendly towards his. Um, but that was quite a shock to him. And all of this, uh, all of this, um, ceased for about 10 years, a relationship between them. They never saw each other again. Chambers said, of course, he heard about things that Hiss was doing because Hiss, uh, became fairly prominent. Um, this came to a head uh in about 1948 um there were other people elizabeth bentley was um one of these people whom nowadays a lot of people are not familiar with but she was an ex uh communist one of these people who left the communist party if i remember correctly um was uh, an organizer within the party who uh, eventually testified uh, about all these operations. Um, that was going on at the time. Uh, that happened before Chambers started to testify. And that led to Chambers uh, being subpoenaed by HUAC, the, the House on Un-American Activities, that was um, investigating all of these things. At the time, there were rumours about it, at the time, um, some people in the government knew that this was going on, but didn't really do very much about it. Uh, a lot of people thought it was too far-fetched as well. And that's the, that was the, the force, the, the winds that, the, that they were up against. And so Al Jahis comes into all of this because Whitaker Chambers... Uh, after being subpoenaed, uh, started to give some of the um, most interesting testimony to that point, and he uh, corroborated a lot of things that 
uh, Elizabeth Bentley and um, some other informers had been saying. And uh, he listed uh, numerous people uh, whom he had worked with within these circles, uh, one of them being Alger Hiss. And so that's what started the, the Hiss case. So what happened, I mean, one of the reasons that this is still a bone of contention, there's still a bone of contention about this even today, uh, amongst quite a few commentators and um, history buffs, is that Alger Hiss never confessed to being a member of the Communist Party. They never had any uh, documentary evidence of a, you know, a Communist Party card or anything like that. As far as I understand, that wouldn't have existed uh, for what would be obvious uh, security reasons. Uh, what, so what, what convicted his was uh, he was convicted on perjury. So that's another reason why a lot of people, um, certainly those uh, who incline more towards the political views that uh, his espoused, uh, believe he was innocent of these charges. Um, they believed simply that he was uh, a New Deal liberal. Uh, that he had not been a member of the Communist Party, um, because uh, he was he was convicted on perjury, and uh, they they consider that mainly that he didn't um, stick to his story properly. He should have taken the fifth. He said things that he didn't mean to, and then that contradicted each other. And then the one of the other things as well that, that makes it a bone of contention. It's a very good question. It's, it's certainly a um, a very legitimate question. Well, you know, even if he had been a member of the Communist Party, so what? Uh, if he wasn't anymore, did it? Did you know? Why would it have mattered? Um, you know, I mean, we're going to start persecuting people based on political views. So it's worth mentioning at this point why this was an issue. Well, um, being having been a member of the Communist Party uh, became I forget I forget exactly when, but it became illegal. Uh, it became a condition of Ill illegality uh, if one worked in the U.S. government. Um, I can't remember exactly when the year was for that. But yeah, if you were to have worked in the US government at that point, then you could not have been a member of the Communist Party um, or a member of the Nazi Party in Germany uh, at any time previously. And I think there might have been one of the uh, one of the political organizations as well, I can't recall. Most of this pertained, some of it pertained to uh, new immigrants from uh, Europe. Um, but also some of this uh, pertained to the Communist Party. And the other big issue, of course, was that if they had been uh, conducting espionage, that was the main issue, really. 
Um, furthermore, if if he had been a member of Communist Party, if he denied this, and then it turned out that he had been, again, that would be perjury. The main the main issue uh, in the case was that of um, of espionage, and um, if I remember correctly, to do with uh, the laws on um, not having been a member of the Communist Party uh, in order to work in the positions that he had held. Um, as I said, he denied it. Uh, he was uh, imprisoned for perjury when he was found guilty in the case. To his very dying day, his very last day, to his dying day, I should say, he denied that he had been in the Communist Party, which is used as one of the strongest pieces of evidence that he had indeed not been a member of the Communist Party. However, what is all the evidence that he was? Um, well, apart from, <clears throat> apart from uh, the evidence brought in court, the evidence that Chambers talks about, um, the Venona Papers, uh, released in the 1990s, not that there's very much actually uh, in there, um, very little was released. If you're not familiar with the Venona Papers, they were released in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And there are bits of information in there that pertain to the Cold War, that, that um, give answers to certain questions. One of the code names that uh, some someone, I don't think it was Chambers, it was someone else, uh, at some point during the Cold War, when asked about this, gave a code name for his that um, no one else would have known. This was not verified uh, at the time, but when the Venona papers were disclosed uh, in one of the transcript in one of the transcripts somewhere, this code name is used, referring to um, an intelligence source. So that's one of the strongest pieces of pieces of evidence, apart from that given in the case. Uh, in in summary, what happened was his changed his story too much. He denied that he had ever known Chambers, and then later he claimed that uh, he had actually, in fact, known Chambers. Uh, he didn't recognize him at first. It had taken two or three weeks to recall who this person was. And then he said that he had known Chambers under the name of George, uh, Mr. George Crosley, whom he gave a car to. And then he said, well, he loaned the car. He couldn't remember if he had sold him the car. And uh, he tied himself in knots over this. So this contradicted his testimony. Uh, he, he contradicted it many times. That got him on the ropes. And then uh, 
the knockout blow came when I think it was the Justice Department. I'd have to remember. Um, at some point, Chambers decided to bring in documentary evidence uh, that he remem uh, he remembered that he had that when he started the case he he had actually forgotten about. And uh, I can't remember if he got the documents and then still didn't bring them in until he was subpoenaed to. I can't remember. Throughout throughout the whole case, he talks about this in the book. He says throughout all of this, he struggled tremendously with the internal difficulties of being a witness. Um, he really didn't enjoy testifying against uh, his old comrades um, for various reasons. He he felt it was a pretty disgusting act to do because he said, you know, he'd shared uh, tables with these people. Uh, they had been um, in a very close bond, really. And he had left the party. He said he wished that others could have the opportunity to leave if they so wished and unburden themselves of all they had done. But he said it got to a point where his, because his just wouldn't admit that he had been a, a member of the Communist Party, it, it, it gave Chambers no, no choice but to, to bring in more evidence. And so this evidence um, was lists of documents, sorry, lists of documents, uh, was, lots of, was lots of documents in his, his handwriting. Um, one of the main ones being a typed copy of a State Department document with Hiss's handwriting on it. Now this was brought in when um, this was brought in in what's known as the second Hiss case, um, when Hiss brought libel against Chambers, and uh, Hiss's lawyer, the name of whom I forget, Lloyd Stryker, is it? Um, I think. I think I'm wrong. I think that was Hiss's lawyer in the first case, but not the second. I'd have to check. Hiss's lawyer in the second case gen generally, so gen genuinely believed that Hiss was innocent. Um, most of these, most of uh, Hiss's friends uh, believed he was innocent. And so, as Chambers writes, that led uh, his lawyer to make the fatal mistake of requesting that if Chambers actually had any documentary evidence, he must produce it. Because if not, then um, he would have to admit that he didn't have any documentary evidence whatsoever. And Chambers um, says that he walked into, uh, walked into a deposition he was not expected to hand over any documentary evidence, and of course he did. And uh, Hiss's lawyer later wrote, Hiss's lawyer later wrote, Chambers doesn't talk about this, but um, I think Berenford talks about this. 
Here's his lawyer uh, later wrote that as soon as he was given that uh, document, he knew the case was over. He had been friends with Hiss for many, many years, and he knew Hiss's handwriting in him instantly. And, um, I mean, he continued with the case. He tried to help Hiss. Uh, he didn't show any or very little um, acknowledgement that the case was pretty much won at that point, but he knew it. I think he must have felt pretty um, betrayed and shocked um, because his uh, many many people. This is why it's interesting because it relates to to it relates to the situation in the world today, political uh, situation these days. A lot of people. In shall we say, you know, the the upper class and the you know the good circles, they couldn't believe that Mister Hiss had been a communist because he was one of them. Um, also, to a large extent, they shared a lot of views with him, and so this must have been um, a bit too close to home. You know, agreed with him on a lot of things. And so maybe that um, uh, was a big um, subtle criticism of, of the things that they believed and supported. You know, they, they liked the idea that the government is going to control this, that and the other. Of course, it's doing it for, for um, ostensibly good reasons, auspicious reasons. Um, you know, it's of course it's not like the Soviet Union. And then, well, the Soviet Union might be okay, but well, we hear these stories about it. It's not that bad. Um, we don't know. So, hearing that his, hearing that his had uh, been a communist, I think shook them a uh, shook them a lot. Uh, it's something that divided the nation. Um, Chambers as well. They couldn't believe that a man like Chambers, um, overweight sweaty, uh, a very good writer, but actually a, a pretty poor uh, public speaker. They couldn't believe that that guy had been correct. And uh, his, um, their boy, um, had, had, had uh, perjured himself, um, had, had been wrong, had been uh, lying. So that was the evidence that uh, convicted his. Uh, with the car, um, as Chambers writes, his gave a car over to the Communist Party. He wanted his car to be his old car to be used for what he considered to be good purposes, and so uh, J. Peters the head of the American Communist Party and Chambers himself were very much against this. They thought this is going to leave a back trail of paper. This is, it's just too dangerous. Hiss insisted and for some reason they caved in. And this is what actually uh, it seemed like a very minor thing to do 
but this is this was the main evidence um, early on in the Hiss case. Uh, Hiss managed to. It's not known for certain whether he managed to get a copy of Chambers' testimony uh, that was given in the executive session. It it is very likely based on uh, Hiss's behaviour. What happened was Chambers, um, during his, I think it was his second um, grilling by the by Huac, um, second interview with Huac, uh, went off the record. So uh, while he was talking, he didn't really want to give a lot of information. He said, well, you know, I know these things, but, you know, he said, could I go off record? And then Nixon said, off record. And then later they went back on record, like one minute later, one hour later. Um, this transcript doesn't say. And so uh, that uh, possibly led, that led Hiss to not know what information Chambers had given to HUAC. A lot of his questions sound like he was groping for uh, clues, information as to uh what had what um chambers had divulged and what he hadn't and so after about two weeks i think it was of denying uh denying that he had ever known chambers this is what made um huac take up the case they there were a lot of pressures because because of who whom his was he had a lot of friends, a lot of connections. Uh, people in the government liked him. Also, the the um, the communist influence that had got into the, into the government as well. But to a large extent, as Chambers writes, people who were well-meaning, who you, know, you could often say fellow travellers, who didn't really believe that that these people were communists, like Alger Hiss or. Um, those from that, uh, from the Ware group and this this other group whose name I forget. Um, they were very they were very helpful when they could. When Hiss was denying he was a communist, and so they they really believed him. So they they didn't want this to be taken up. They thought that uh, the man had been wrongfully accused. The reason that Huac took it up uh, was largely Richard Nixon. I think um, Stripling might have uh, inclined as well, but Nixon said there were, I think he said there were three things that made him think there was something in the case. Uh, the first being that Alger Hiss, during his, uh, during his deposition, didn't actually deny knowing the man that stood before him, sorry, uh, that stood before him. Pictures, sorry. He didn't know the um, man whom he was shown pictures of. He was very careful to say he did not know this man, Whitaker Chambers. And as Nixon said, he didn't, uh, his didn't say that he didn't know this man whom he was shown pictures of 
by any other name. And as Nixon said, from what we've been learning, in the underground, uh, they have all these code names. This is a bit of a red herring. Uh, the second being that Whitaker Chambers, you know, if Whitaker Chambers is uh, lying, what possible motive does he have? If he doesn't like Alger Hiss, he's a senior editor at Time Magazine, he could... Uh, why would someone who's a, not just a Time Magazine, a senior editor at Time Magazine, why would he, uh, why would he do this? Why would he um, destroy himself, possibly, by bringing these claims forward? And the third thing was, if, uh, if Hiss had been a member of the Communist Party, um, is not necessarily a question. All we need to do now, because he's denied knowing Chambers, well, all we need to do is find out, did he actually know him? There must be, uh, that must be a fairly easy thing to clear up. Because if you don't know someone, uh, you, you're not going to be able to answer a lot of questions about them, especially from many years ago. And uh, this is um, this is why Hiss drove himself in knots. After two weeks, he finally um, decided that he would uh, acknowledge Chambers, but under a different name. He said this was a man he had met. Uh, he uh, gave him uh, permission to be in his house. He, he subleased to him. And then he got all the dates wrong. Uh, the worst part was the car. As Chambers said, uh, because the car had been uh, turned over to the Communist Party, and uh, Huac managed to get the records of this, of, this, of, the, of the deal, of the sale and everything, this was something that Alger has brought up himself in the case, along with a, with a uh, with a, an oriental rug that was gifted by the Communist Party. He brought both of the, these are, these were hard evidence that connected him to the Communist Party, and he brought it up himself during the case, not Chambers. Uh, why did he do that? Well, most likely because he knew that it was something that Chambers had possibly said to Huac but it had been off the record. And by bringing it up himself, he was hoping to um, somehow uh, whitewash these um, pieces of evidence, try to make it, make it seem like they had not been connected in any way to anything that Chambers might say. But by, by doing this, uh, he, was, he was working on invention working by invention, I should say. And so originally he said that he sold this car to a Mr. Crosley. Then this became, well, he, he loaned it. Well, he couldn't remember if Crosley gave it back. And then this, this is one of the key dramatic moments in the case um, that created laughter in the courtroom. Uh, this was on the day, like uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, 
the elite uh, had, had you know had walked into the court case they were expecting hiss to run rings around uh the the silly men uh, um on on the committee and actually the opposite happened um nixon asked his do you need you know do you need to qualify your statements with to the best of my recollection which his i think said about 193 times during during uh, all of his um uh, all, all of his testimony said uh, do, do you you know do, do you really need to say that over uh, the gifting of a car uh, how many cars have you ever given away in your life mr hiss to which everyone laughed he said oh, it's a serious question and hiss said only one and of course um, at that point it was pretty well established that um that he had committed perjury and this was followed up by the uh the state department documents the uh apart from the handwriting on the documents um apart from the handwriting on the documents one of the other uh, major pieces of evidence was that um, individual typewriters uh, will have uh, scratches and markings on the uh, letters and so uh, kind of like a fingerprint and by looking at those they managed to find that the um, typewritten state uh, copies of state department documents had been written on uh, Alger Hiss's personal um, typewriter and uh, at one point, when this was brought forward in court, Hiss said, I, I don't know how Whitaker Chambers managed to get into my house uh, to use my typewriter. Um, at that point, it was, uh, that point, the case was pretty much uh, concluded. Uh, shortly later, Hiss was uh, sentenced for perjury. And as I said earlier, I mean, this, this, uh, didn't necessarily sway a lot of people. Quite a quite a few people who had believed his originally uh, changed their minds. But um, yeah, uh, Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State, uh, said that he would stand by his even after uh, he was the, he was the um, acting uh, Secretary of State at the time. Said he would uh, stand by his even after he had been. Um, convicted and that's why today aside from being a very interesting uh, piece of history um it's uh, a key story in modern american conservatism i mean certainly historically uh, chambers is one of its most eloquent writers um one of its best shapers but it might be good to to end by saying how this relates to the situation today um and it might be quite interesting to read about it might help to bring 
to, to hearten uh, many of you who might be listening to this. You know, today you you might have issues with with family, um, the cultural divide, where I mean to be to be a member of uh, certain groups, organizations. You know, you're in certain circles. You're expected to believe certain things. Um, the you know these people are. are the good people and and these people are the the bad people. You know you can't you can't possibly uh, uh, say you know they're they're conspiracy theorists etc etc. Well, that's what that what that's it's exactly the same thing. Uh, Whitaker Chambers was reviled by all of the pretty much anyway or a lot of the upper crust. Uh, a lot of intellectuals, um, a lot of people, maybe the majority of uh, his fellow literary figures and writers. And his was championed by them. Chambers goes to great lengths to, to stress just how much power his had on his side. Um, were it not for the documentary evidence that was provided and uh, probably tactical moves by uh, by HUAC, um, yes, uh, his might, might never have actually been convicted and Chambers might have been convicted by history um, for, for doing what he did for testifying. Uh, he writes that it took him so long because it was so difficult to testify against uh, against all these former members of the of the Communist Party, uh, and quite a few of them had remained in the Communist Party, and that has echoes uh, to to today's climate, where his is sorry Chambers is writing about how people within the government. Was was suppressing this as much as possible, uh, either because they liked his, they were a fellow traveller with him. Of course, they did, you know they didn't. They, they thought maybe it takes it too far. But you know we you know we share the same values on many different things, etc., etc. Or they were just covering up. Uh, they were covering up drone failures to stop or stem. Uh, these espionage groups, or just the embarrassment that um, it, it, it had happened and it was happening. Uh, again, one of the key elements, uh, one of the key elements in the case, not key elements, I should say, one of the most, one of the most revealing parts of the case that didn't really change very much in the case, but it's extremely revealing was that the head of the American Communist Party, or um, he might have only been the head of, of the underground operations. I might, I might be forgetting that. It was one of the two, uh, this man, Jay Peters, whose real name, he used many different pseudonyms. Um, I think his real name was Alexander Goldberger, but I might be wrong. 
um, he used quite a few different pseudonyms. He was a Hungarian, and he had been in the United States illegally. And finally, during the, his case, uh, he was found. He was brought in. And instead of being put on, on trial or being put in the witness stand, he was deported. Uh, at the very moment, at the very moment, um, possibly apart from Chambers, the most important witness uh, to, to this whole case. And he was deported. Uh, it, it's quite incredible. I didn't know that. Um, I had I had heard a little bit about the case before. I'd never heard that before. Uh, I'm surprised it's not one of the more well-known parts of the case. And Chambers was incredulous as well. He couldn't believe that that was going to happen. And he remarked to Nixon about it. And Nixon told him, they're never going to, they're never going to, allow Peters to testify and Chambers asked well why why wouldn't they and uh, Nixon had to say well you know apart from the embarrassment it might cause elements of the government or that they you know they don't want you know they don't want his to be convicted um, allowing Peters to testify would mean that uh, you also might be a credible witness um, there was another case involved, it could have been in the Bentley case, I can't remember. Um, Chambers was uh, expected to testify and they didn't allow him. If he had been allowed to testify, the government had wanted him to testify against Peters and to testify in other cases, then they, as, as Nixon said, they would be admitting you are a credible witness and of course that means you would also be a credible witness against Alger Hiss. So it's it's a very um, it's a very heartening story. It's a very sympathetic story for uh, the times of today. And many of you who um, might have undergone these kind of issues can, can take heart in seeing that the, the, this was all gone through before. And um, even though it can be exasperating, as Chambers remarks somewhere near the end of the book, uh, during, the, during the trials, uh, he's, he said to someone, you know, he was asking them, pleading with them, you know, you know why, why, why do I have to go through all of this? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, his friend said, his friend quoted one of the gospel stories, uh, the story of the blind man whom Jesus heals. And uh, one of the disciples or one of the um, onlookers asks Jesus, well, who's, you know, who, whose sin was it that he was blind? Was it... Was it his parents or was it his? To which Jesus replies, it was no no one no one's sin. He was blind so that the works of God could be revealed from him.
I'll close with Chambers' own words. This is at the end of the foreword letter to my children. It's written to his children, but um, I mean, for the general reader, it's just as powerful. He writes, my children, when you were little, we used sometimes to go for walks in our pine woods. In the open fields, you would run along by yourselves, but you used instinctively to give me your hands as we entered those woods, where it was darker, lonelier, and in the stillness, our voices sounded loud and frightening. In this book, I am again giving you my hands. I am leading you not through cool pine woods, but up and up a narrow defile between bare and steep rocks from which in shadows, shadow things uncoil and sliver away. It will be dark, but in the end, if I have led you aright, you will make out three crosses, from two of which hang thieves. I will have brought you to Golgotha, the place of skulls. This is the meaning of the journey. Before you understand, I may not be there. My hands may have slipped from yours. It will not matter. For when you understand what you see, you will no longer be children. You will know that life is pain that each of us hangs always upon the cross of himself. And when you know that this is true of every man, woman and child on earth, you will be wise. It's a powerful, powerful book. Uh, Whitaker Chambers' Witness. Certainly, if you ever read it, uh, you won't forget it. This is Ianto Fox. Enjoy your stay in the Gulch.